Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Well, good morning and Happy New Year. I concur with Frank and Anthony about how excited I am to see everybody together in one place to start out the new year and to worship together. And the theme of our passage this morning is worship. So I think we're gonna be off to a good start as we go into this next year. I'm also excited because I don't have to rush out, (laughs) drive to Sherman Park, preach, rush out, drive to West Dallas, and preach again. And I guess that also means I can preach as long as I want. So nobody said that, but you know, there's, don't have to worry about the traffic, the weather, anything else. I think that's pretty cool. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. So whatever device you have with you that you use to read your scripture, if you want to take that out, that's where we'll be. Let me start us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to worship together as one body and to begin this new year with our focus on our almighty God and his precious son, Jesus Christ, and his gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live the life that you have called us to. And Father, we pray that your spirit would speak to us now through your word what it is that you would have us take into this new year. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed how children love to compare themselves with one another? They do it all the time. And sometimes we as parents encourage it. Who's the fastest? Who's the smartest? Who's the tallest? Who can jump the highest? Who can shoot the three-pointer? Who can score with the soccer ball or score the touchdown? Or who can hit the home run in baseball? It, It becomes a game of sorts might be able to call that the comparison game. Now, sometimes comparisons can be helpful because they motivate children to work harder and to try harder. But sometimes they can be painful because they're used in a negative or in a destructive way. I remember struggling a lot with that when I was a kid because I always felt I was on the losing end of the game. And part of that is I started wearing eyeglasses when I was three and a half years old because I had an eye that drifted over to one side. And when I eventually started school, that was no fun. The pirate look really wasn't very popular back in those days. So it made things a little bit harder. And uh, oftentimes I found myself on the sidelines watching my friends play baseball and other kinds of sports. And I kind of remember how cruel a kid could be about people who wore glasses back in those days. Sad thing is that when you have a problem with your eyes, there's nothing else you can do about it. You just have to use glasses to correct it. You live with the eyes you're born with, right? And there's no shame in having bad eyes. So I often found myself on the sidelines watching my friends play the games. Adolescents also play the comparison game. Uh, Only they compare different kinds of things. At this stage of life, they begin to compare clothes and hair and body features and boyfriends and girlfriends and grades and your popularity on different apps on the internet. You know, all kinds of really important stuff. 
But the game doesn't end there because we continue to play the comparison game as adults as well. We begin to compare other kinds of things like success, possessions, wealth, prestige, portfolios, or lack thereof, cars, gadgets, and yes, even our children. Who are the fastest? Who are the greatest in sports? And so the the whole drill kind of continues from there. But I'll tell you a little secret. Even pastors play the comparison game at times, especially when they come together for an event. And the conversations often go like this. Hi, Bob. How's it going? How's your family doing? So how are things at church? How many people do you have now? Now, is that just in one location or do you have multiple locations? Oh, well, hang in there. Things will get better. Christians in general play the comparison game. They sometimes compare themselves and their lives with each other. They wonder why God seems to be blessing some people, but not others, especially themselves. But even worse, believers often compare themselves and their success and their lives with unbelievers in the world around them. Now, the comparison game isn't unique to our time or our culture. Several thousand years ago, a poet, by, a poet and a musician by the name of Asaph played the comparison game, and he struggled with that severely. We don't know a great deal about Asaph. We do know that he was the worship leader during the reigns of King uh, David and King Solomon, He was a songwriter who wrote at least 11 of the Psalms in our Old Testament, designated as book three of the five sections of Psalms, including Psalm 73, the one that we want to look at today. In this Psalm, we find that Asaph himself played the comparison game, comparing himself and his life to that of godless people living around him. And in the course of playing that game, he makes a very profound discovery about his life and life in general. And there's three truths that emerge that each of us needs to apply to our own lives whenever we are tempted to play that game, but especially as we begin this new year, 2023. So Asaph begins his discourse in verse one, with a firm affirmation of truth. He begins on a positive note. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now let the reader be assured of where Asaph stands. He's fully convinced of God's goodness. He's fully convinced of God's commitment to the people of Israel who sincerely seek his leadership in their lives. What follows next is kind of a confession, an honest sharing of his heart about experiences that he's been going through. He shares it not out of pride because uh, the experience itself was nothing to be proud of, but I believe he shares it to glorify God and to encourage others who might find themselves in the same situation even thousands of years later. 
Verse two, but as for me, my, foot, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. In today's language, we'd probably say, he almost lost his grip, or simply, he almost lost it. Have you ever found yourself saying that? I almost lost it the other day when I received the cell phone bill. I almost lost it last week when the shower that I worked on for days to repair started to leak again. I almost lost it when the kids broke the iPad that they were supposed to be sharing with each other. You get the picture. We often use that expression when we lose control or even lose our temper. Asaph is talking here about losing his grip spiritually. Notice what he says. I had nearly lost my foothold. Now, if you've ever done any kind of climbing, you know the importance of a firm foothold. Whether you're ascending or descending a steep incline, you need to make sure that your your footing is firm. Your whole life, literally, can depend on having your feet firmly planted. Asaph's foothold was his faith in God, his relationship with the most high sovereign creator of the universe. But he almost slipped from that firm footing and lost his balance. Asaph's foothold was his faith in God, his relationship with somebody who was alive and a vital part of his life. So how did all of this happen? Well, the reason for him slipping away from God is found in verse three. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What happened to Asaph? Well, he began living by comparison. He began to measure the value of his life by comparing his own life with the lives of other people around him. And you know, sometimes it's easy to grow weary and well-doing when we begin to look around at the lives of other people and assume that their life is actually better. Have you ever done that? I have. I think a lot of people find themselves measuring the value of their own lives by comparing themselves with their friends, with their neighbors, with their coworkers, even with their relatives. What follows is some of Asaph's comparative thinking, which is, of course, an exaggeration of the truth of the situation in other people's lives. By the way, this type of exaggeration often occurs when we're tired, discouraged, just simply are at a poor place in life. We sometimes have a pity party where we wallow in our own despair and we begin to feel sorry for ourselves. Has anybody ever done that? No, you don't have to raise your hands, but I'm glad I'm not alone. Now, Asaph goes on to describe them. Who are the people he's talking about? Them, the people he's comparing himself to. Verse four, they have no struggles. Really? Their bodies are healthy and strong. Always? Their bodies are free from burdens common to man. Could that be true? They are not plagued 
by human ills. Okay, how is that possible? Who are the they he keeps referring to? They are the wicked, those without God in their lives. They are the ones we are prone to envy, the ones with the money, the big cars, the fancy houses, the ones we see in the media, the ones we see in the movie. Sometimes we even find ourselves envying other believers. But Asaph is clearly referring to godless people. Asaph knows that these things are not always true. He knows deep in his heart that the wicked are not better off. But he's being honest in sharing how he feels. You know, oftentimes, that's where recovery actually begins. Being honest about how we're feeling and what's going on in our lives. And let's admit it. Sometimes we do feel that deep level of despair. And if you dwell on that way of thinking, you can begin to believe it's true. Next, Asaph deals with their spiritual condition of the them people. Verse six, their pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their hearts know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Okay, the pity party is now in full force. Asaph delineates their sinfulness. Notice, their pride, their violence, their evil conceits, their malice, their arrogance, their greed. And to make it worse, these are people who actually scoff at God. They're not looking to God to provide leadership in their lives. Verse 11, they, them, say, how does God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Well, even though this is what they're like, according to Asaph, they're always carefree. They increase in wealth, they get richer all the time. Can you imagine? What's wrong with this picture? It's true, isn't it? Do you agree? Well, if you agree with that, you'll agree with what comes next in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. What he's really saying is, what's the sense in being good? Why should I pursue holiness? Wouldn't I be better off living like the people around me who don't even believe in God? Aren't their lives really better than my own? Now, tell me honestly, if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever had those kinds of thoughts. And I think if we're all honest, we'd have to say that we have. I'm sure we've all come to that point of despair in our lives when we've asked the question, where is God in all of this? Where has God gone? 
Why are people who don't care about God and who even mock God better off in their lives than I am? Wouldn't I be better off pursuing worldly gain rather than following God? In the midst of asking yourself these kinds of questions, you may have come to the same conclusion that Asaph does in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your childhood. Now, what does he mean by that? Asaph knew he couldn't say these things out loud to his parents or to his family because it would be a denial, a betrayal of their faith and and his own heritage. But now comes the clincher, verse 16. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. The problem of evil, the apparent inequities of life haunted him. In human terms, there was no explanation, no way to understand, no way to console himself for the anguish that he felt. He was living by comparison. And it was the godless he was comparing himself to in that process. Even David, who was Asaph's mentor, his model, asked himself that question many times. Why do the wicked prosper? Well, how is Asaph measuring prosperity? Well, in human terms, success, wealth, power, possessions. Now, we had the privilege of serving as missionaries in France a number of years ago. And after spending a couple of years just outside of Paris, we moved down to the town of Monton on the southern course, uh, coast on the Mediterranean and right on the border of Italy. We're just a short distance from the Principality of Monaco and Monte Carlo. We're actually inside of France geographically and also on the Mediterranean coast. So whenever we would travel to the city of Nice, which was to the west of us, we would often go through Monaco. You've probably heard of Monaco. The royal family in those days consisted of Prince Rainier, Carolyn, Stephanie, and Albert. They were sort of our neighbors. Kind of felt good to think about it that way. They were our neighbors. Well, maybe not really, but to us, Monaco is like a fairy tale kingdom. We couldn't afford anything there, but it was fun just to walk around and to pretend, you know, like we were rich and famous. Sometimes I would take my son to Monte Carlo and we would sit in a cafe across from the Grand Casino just to watch the incredible Italian sports cars that would pull up in front and these glamorously dressed people would step out and go into the casino. It was easy to think, I could live like that. This wouldn't be so bad. And if I wasn't careful... I could begin to slip into Asaph's way of thinking. What's the answer to Asaph's lament? We'll look at that after this next song. (laughs) 
prone to wonder prone to give my heart away to every anxious thought to every lesser love prone to worry prone to doubt you're in control of every rise and fall but you transcend it all true come unite my heart to feel
beginning to get the picture you are God and I am not I'm so thankful this psalm doesn't end with verse 16 because in the next two verses there's a sudden shift and change that takes place in the tone of his confession it's the change and the truth behind the change that are important for us this morning because that truth is very profound It's equally important to understand what happened to Asaph that caused him to discover this truth. Verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Now don't misunderstand this verse. Asaph didn't simply go to church, or in his case, go to temple. No, he entered into the sanctuary of God. He entered into the presence of God to worship him. His focus shifted from himself and the world around him to the holy, righteous, sovereign, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, loving, and compassionate Yahweh, creator of the universe, And suddenly, dramatically, his thinking shifted to the true reality. Author Lawrence Lawrence Tomes explains this further. He says, not infrequently, as in the case of Asaph, the situation is seen in different light in the sanctuary from that in which it appears in the world. In the sanctuary, the center of the psalmist's life was changed from self to God. The change of center made possible a startling revelation. In his poverty and oppression, he nevertheless possessed the only thing in the world worth having, the presence of God in his life. To be with God, to have his guidance and counsel, and to be the heir of the promises is a treasure beside which the possessions of the worldly are shoddy trinkets. The prosperity of the wicked was a dream. The presence of God was the reality. Life seen in different light in the sanctuary is what we call worship. What exactly is worship? Worship is the act and attitude of attributing worth to God. That is to exalt him as the only Lord God, creator of the universe and savior of mankind. In Ben Patterson's book, Serving God in Our Work and Worship, he asserts that worship is a reality check. Wow, 
Never thought of it quite that way. Why do we worship? Worship is a reality check. It seems funny to me that believers are often accused of escaping from reality and being out of touch with reality. But see, how could a person without God view God in that way? God is reality. Sin is reality. The conflict between good and evil is real. And worship is our opportunity to put life back into perspective. Maybe you remember the Matrix trilogy of movies and others that have come out since. They originally came out about 20 years ago. And the premise of the movie is that we're living in an illusion, a false reality, with the, world con- uh, with the real world controlling everything in the background. The main character, Neil, struggled, struggles to come to grips with the illusion and the reality behind it and attempts to get back to the real world. Asaph would have understood, Neil. We're all like Asaph at times. The world around us overshadows our perspective and and we begin to lose sight of reality, true reality. Worship is our reality check, our opportunity to get our lives back into alignment with his truth. So what are the three truths that made a difference in Asaph's thinking? First truth, the prosperity of the wicked and the value of temporal things are only an illusion. That's the illusion. In verses 18 to 20, verse 18, he says, surely you place them, the wicked, on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin." how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terror. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. What a confession. What he's saying, simply put, is that those without God have a present, but they have no future. In God's economy, they are spiritually bankrupt and devoid of any spiritual value. Their prosperity is temporal. It's only an illusion. Asaph realizes that the grief and bitterness that came from him living by comparison blinded him to the truth, God's truth. But as he worshiped his God, the bitterness melted away and the illusion disappeared. He allowed God to fill his heart with truth and his eyes were opened. Sometimes we forget that Satan is the father of lies and makes every effort to deceive us and to keep us from the truth keeping us away from worship, from the word, and from prayer are are some of his greatest strategies in building that illusion. Now, the second truth is that the presence of God and eternity are realities. Verse 23, Asaph says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward 
you take me up in your glory. Notice this next verse. It's life-changing. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Say that with me. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 27, he says, those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Verse 28, but as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell of all your deeds. So where do we get our strength to deal with the daily trials and tribulations of life? Asaph says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Why do we need to commit ourselves to coming together for worship? It is good to be near God. It is good to be with God's people, worshiping him together. Asaph continues, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Do you see what Asaph is saying here? Do you believe it in your heart? Are you making worship both on a personal level and on a corporate level a priority in your life? He says, as we need to say, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Then comes the third truth. The world has nothing to offer that compares with God. The world has nothing to offer that compares with God. Listen very carefully, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. Say that one together. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. One final question for you this morning. Do you truly believe this verse? Can you testify to that this morning? See, if we truly believe this, if, if we believe that the earth has nothing to desire apart from God, that belief will transform our lives and our priorities. What better way to start the new year than to affirm this truth here this morning? Close your eyes for a moment and repeat it with me. Earth has nothing I desire beside you. Again, earth has nothing I desire beside you. Do you see how freeing that is? Do you see how we are delivered from pride and envy and idolatry and jealousy and despair when we come into God's presence? Earth has nothing I desire beside you. <clears throat> In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John warns us, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever, forever. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey this morning, but I do know that the world has a way of wearing us down, causing us to be discouraged and even questioning our faith. I also know that we need a reality check on a regular basis because this is not the life that God designed for man, but he has made that life available through Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in him, we can be assured of the life to come when all the inequalities will be done away with and all the impurities of sin will have been cleansed and we will enjoy life and fellowship that God truly desires for all eternity. But for now, I'm confident in in declaring earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we're so thankful that you moved in the heart of Asaph to share honestly the experience that he was going through. And Lord, we know so often for us, we try to hide those feelings. We, we try to shove them down. We don't really deal with them and pretend that they're not a reality. But it wasn't until Asaph came face to face with you and with your truth and truly worshiped you that all of that was changed. Father, I pray if we're, anyone is here this morning and they're going through that struggle, and as they think about entering into this new year, may worship become a reality in all of our lives, both on a personal level, as a family, and corporately as we come together. Earth has nothing I desire beside you. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. In Jesus' name, amen.